Hi, I'm Chad Hughes, and you're listening to Elevated Access, the inside story. This episode, I met with Travis Warren, a seasoned access professional who has spent the majority of his career focused on securing access for renewable energy development across the United States. Travis shares practical guidance for successful access outcomes on renewable projects and the differences between renewable project access and pipeline project access. He shares hard-earned insights on the importance of broad preparation and even insights on what makes for a successful mindset. Let's tune in to the conversation with Travis. Travis, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Chad. Yeah. You know, our conversations leading up to this, and I think one of the reasons we both thought it would be a great conversation to share with others has to do with the the nuances with accessing land for renewable energy projects. And, you know, I think the, the undercurrent of our conversation today is really going to shed light for people on really the differences between acquiring land for a renewable project and versus uh, acquiring land for maybe a more typical right-of-way project. So I'm looking forward to leaning into that with you here this morning as we, as we get going, just to help our listeners with how you came to be so well-versed at, at this. Tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I started in access uh, and right-of-way industry back in around 2006. And I actually started in renewables uh, as opposed to you know many other folks who kind of got their start in, in transmission or oil and gas and then into renewables. Uh, I had a colleague of mine, a, a good friend of mine, who was general counsel for a land service company out in Midland, Texas, and NextEra, uh, FPL at the time, had just started a, a big land rush out in the Permian, and this little land service company just had more than they could take on, and so he contacted me and said, "Hey, I've you know if you're interested, I'll train you, show you what we do." Uh, but we need a lot of help. Uh, so took the opportunity. Uh, and that kind of was my introduction, not only to access, but to renewables at the same time. So I started both at the same time with FPL, uh, working on some of their projects out there. Uh, Capricorn Ridge uh, was in Sterling City at the time. Um, and then, of course, they had their Horse Hollow project uh, out in the Snyder Abilene area as well. Started doing that uh, for about two years, I guess it was. Really interested in renewables at that time, trying to get uh, my head wrapped around more of the development process. Got an opportunity to work in-house for a developer directly, uh, hired on with Podoma Wind Power as an assistant development director uh, or development manager uh, under David Little, who's now uh, heads up the North America branch for Interjex. Uh, Podoma was a small group, so on the development team, there there might have been seven or eight of us, uh, many of whom I still talk to today. 
And we had projects going on in Texas, California, uh, dipping in New Mexico at the time. And I just got a lot of experience working on the development side, the title side, the wind engineering side. Um, I participated in a lot of the meteorological testing. I uh, got to get my hands uh, dipped into LIDAR technology, SODAR technology, et cetera. They got purchased by a larger international firm. And at that time, it was about 2010, uh, they wanted everybody to relocate uh, to Southern California. Uh, unfortunately for myself, a uh, family of five living in a small town in Texas, uh, relocating to you know the San Diego area wasn't in the cards for us. Uh, just wasn't a good time. So parted ways. And at that point, I, you know, built up a, a network of different connections and just started doing contract work uh, independently for a couple of different customers. And long story short, the next several years uh, just took on more projects than I personally could handle. So I hired a few folks to help. Uh, and that just kind of grew into a small service company uh, focused on solar projects and wind projects, a little bit of energy storage projects as well. 2017 rolls around and I merged with a larger service company, Contract Land Staff, uh, here in the Houston area. Uh, subsequently came on board to, to handle um, and oversee their renewable division uh, up until this year, 2021. I had an opportunity to kind of shift gears um, into a different, uh, still in renewables, but a different uh, sector of the renewable space in title insurance. So uh, spent 15 years working in access uh, primarily with uh, renewable projects, but got involved with oil and gas pipeline and transmission as well along the way. But uh, I've, I've been uh, on the front lines with several different developers uh, throughout the year, some of the companies that aren't even in existence anymore. <laughs> but that's kind of a quick rundown of what, what I, how I got into the space. That's great. Do you think that, well, I find that a lot of, a lot of people that are working in the renewable space have pivoted from other sectors. So, uh, right away agents that have pivoted into renewables. And in your case, it sounds like you started in renewables and then along the way gained some exposure to other types of, of industries. Do you think that benefited you and helped you to really become, I guess, as well-versed as you are with the access nuances around renewables? I do. I, it definitely gave me a different approach. I found myself when I was getting involved with other sectors, transmission projects, uh, oil and gas projects. Uh, I came to the project with a different expectation of how to acquire the easements, the leases, um, you know, whatever contract we were, we were dealing with for a particular project uh, and vice versa. Uh, my experience with folks who have come from oil and gas, um, be it uh, on the mineral side, uh, mineral landmen, 
or even just right-of-way agents coming from the pipeline sector or the transmission uh, right-of-way sector come into it with a different expectation of what they're tasked with. And so for some people transitioning into renewables, uh, it turns out to be a lot more challenging than what they're expecting. Whereas I came into some of the other projects, transmission or, or, or pipeline, expecting it to be a little bit more challenging than it actually was because my experience with the renewal projects were quite challenging, especially in the early 2000s. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of renewable projects out there. And so probably the, the largest challenge that I saw between my experience versus the experience of people coming from other industries uh, had to do with negotiations, uh, contract negotiations with the landowners, uh, as well as the project strategy. Uh, so for a renewable project, a wind project, it was just, it was known that you were going to have to negotiate. The, the dollar figures, the compensation was not anywhere near the same as it was with a, a mineral you know, project, a pipeline project. So you had to really convince landowners of the value that uh, you were bringing to the table, but you also had to understand the project itself. And, you know, when I knocked on doors on behalf of oil and gas companies, uh, the dollar figures were larger. Uh, most people were already excited uh, when you told them you were there for oil and gas but on on at the same time, nobody cared where the where, where the pipe was coming from. Nobody cared what kind of equipment was going to be used uh, by the oil and gas drill, you know, companies versus on a wind project or a solar project. For whatever reason, you know, new technology, uh, something the landowners weren't familiar with. Uh, everybody had questions about how you know. What does the equipment look like? Uh, where is it coming from? You know, what country is it coming from? Who built it? Who manufactured it? Uh, how does it work? So on the renewable side, you became very well versed in just numerous aspects of the project uh, from development to environmental through construction and even in some cases operations versus on that transmission right-of-way side or the pipeline right-of-way side. It's very much, you're there for the easement. You're there to talk about the contract and move on. Um, mm -hmm. There's not near as many conversations about what the equipment or, or who the developer is or uh, where the product's going or who it's benefiting, you know, anything like that. When you first started doing this kind of work and you, you, we're out in the field having these meetings. Did that surprise you? Was like, was that uh, something that you learned as you went that, you know, oh, gee, I, I need to have more information about this project in order to have these conversations and build this rapport? Like, did that come to you as you leaned into the work? Or did you know going in that you were going to need to be equipped with more information? A little bit of both. I guess, 
just like with any sales product, when you, you expect to go talk to somebody and convince them that they need your product, you kind of have an idea that you need to know what your product is. Um, so, you know, there was an aspect of, you know, research. I wanted to make sure I knew, um, you know, who's the developer that I was working for, you know, what's their history, what's their background, um, because they're going to ask, you know, are they experienced? Have they developed before? Have they developed out here before? So you always want to do that research so that you're aware of the product that you're bringing to the table. And, and for us, that product is, is the customer, um, and the reputation that that customer has. So you always wanted to know about that. Uh, but then there's a bit of a learning curve. Once you actually get in front of the landowners, I, I used to say that no two landowners are alike, but they're all the same. And because they all had, you know, questions, you just never, really knew what the question was going to be or how in depth they wanted your answer to be. And so, uh, it was kind of a learning curve getting in front of multiple landowners over the course of, you know, a couple of years to really get a feel for, you know, what kind of information, uh, is expected of you. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it, it took probably a couple of months before, you know, it really set in with me that I need to know more about the turbines themselves, um, how tall they are, how much they produce, how many people manufacture them, what are they made of, what's on the inside. You know, everybody, I mean, I had questions from whether there were elevators or ladders or, you know, if you were climbing on like a tower, like a telecommunications tower all the way to whether or not the blade was low enough to the ground that it was going to cut the cattle in half if they, if they wandered underneath it. So you always wanted to, to make sure you had a a solid picture of what, what is it you're providing and and bringing out here. But at the same time I I had, you know, you deal with different landowners uh, when you're, when you're going out into these uh, rural areas you could have somebody who's been on that property for generations, you know, going back to great, great grandfather, uh, to just a very wealthy investor and different questions come from those, uh, different backgrounds. You know, the ones who have been out there for years, they're going to have more, uh, property questions. How's this going to affect my property? And, and, you know, what am I going to be able to do out here recreationally or, uh, hunting wise, et cetera, versus someone who's out there for more, you know, of a investment property, you know, they, they want to talk dollars and then they always steer you into different contract terms, uh, and want to know more about, uh, the financing language that's in the, the agreement and the insurance coverage and, uh, whether, you know, who gets covered by what, uh, so it was, you know, before long, you, you kind of have to become a jack of all trades, master of none, because uh, right. you got to know a little bit about everything. How, how much did the developer matter to these stakeholders? If you, you know, if you're, you've probably worked for companies who are 
maybe more of a speculator and not a developer versus a true developer. How much did that matter when you were meeting with people? In the earlier years, uh, that played a big role. You know, new technology, people didn't know what a wind turbine looked like unless they lived nearby one. Um, you didn't have these technologies and commercials on TV like you do today. Uh, there were no big corporations putting in carbon goals or anything like that. So people not only had questions about the technology and the project, but they wanted to know who was doing it so that they could have some comfort level as to, is this, you know, a speculator um, or a wildcatter of some sort who's just going to try to flip this property over to somebody? Or is this a company that has a solid reputation, a solid bank account, um, numerous projects already built and operational that they've worked through the kinks. As time went on, I'd say, you know, arguably by 2014, 2015, that was less of an issue uh, because it was, uh, it was in the social realm. There were commercials, um, you saw it in movies, you know, I think one of the movies, one of the hangover movies, the one when they went to Las Vegas, I think they even, they're driving down and you see uh, a wind farm, you know, in the distance, uh, GE started having more commercials with it, with turbines in the background. Um, and then it was on, it was all through the politics, um, you know, became a big discussion and debate, green energy versus traditional oil and gas. And so more and more people knew about it. There were more projects in the ground. Uh, people were making money off of it. Communities were making money off of it and people could see it. So there was less, it wasn't that the concern went away, but there was less of a concern about who was doing it and more so just about the project itself. Where's it going to go? When's it going to go in? Um, how long is it going to be there? And, and you know, how's it going to affect me? I'd like to talk a little bit about the methods of gaining access in the renewable space. And um, like, if you could start there, but then also just draw or, or highlight the differences for us between you know what you're describing as working on the renewable side and, you know, versus what works in other sectors. So help us with that, the methods that worked um, and how they're different from other sectors. So, you know, I'll caveat it by saying that, uh, you know, I'm not the, the expert of experts when it comes to, you know, other industries. So I, I definitely don't want to, for, for any of the other access people listening, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying it or, or overgeneralizing it. But in my experience, you know, with the pipeline projects, with transmission projects, uh, one of the significant differences uh, was condemnation capabilities. And not only did that make a difference for the customer, uh, but it made a difference for the agent in the field uh, because the mindset changes, uh, in my opinion. 
even if you're going after a certain percentage of voluntary acquisition on a pipeline or transmission project, again, in, in my experience, most of the uh, agents understanding is that, you know, whoever we don't get voluntarily will clean up later through condemnation with a renewable project. There is no condemnation capabilities. You're dealing with private developers. So everything is a negotiation. And if, if a landowner says no, then you have to come up with a strategy to get them on board with yes. And it's just a different mindset in my opinion, because you're constantly strategizing, uh, not only strategizing to figure out how do I change this no to a yes, but also strategizing about if this remains a no, how do I get around it? You know, how, how do I continue the successful completion of this project with this person saying no? And so you're constantly strategizing in the background about how to complete this versus um, the, the mentality at times, you know, for an agent on a transmission project or a pipeline project uh, wasn't always as strategic. It was very methodical. Um, you know, we're going to do survey permission. We're going to run title. We're going to do voluntary acquisition for X amount of time. And then whoever said no, we're going to move forward with condemnation to complete the project. So that was one of the big uh, differences that I experienced with the projects, more specifically with the agents, uh, not necessarily the customers, because uh, I don't want to convey that, you know, pipeline companies and transmission companies were apathetic uh, to the projects or to the landowners. Um, it was just the mentality of the agents as far as completing their task. Uh, you could see the difference um, in how they approached it mm-hmm. based on what they knew was going to happen, you know, down the line. Yeah. I, I would say that uh, what it reminds me of the, the renewable sector, because you don't have that ability to condemn or expropriate. Uh, would be similar to acquiring mineral interests in in Canada, where you don't you don't have the the ability to do anything if you don't have a mutually accept acceptable agreement. And I remember how difficult that was for agents who had not worked minerals and had worked more of the surface or right away side of the business, and then coming into minerals. It was um, oftentimes challenging and and not not what they like to do it sounds like in on the renewable side what you're describing is that you need you really need people in the field that are thinking about a lot more things than just the deal and you know just getting the deal um thinking about the what ifs what if i can't get this land take us into that a bit. So you have uh, a situation where you're unable to get an agreement with, with a key landowner. What are, what are you thinking about and what are you looking at in order to keep the project on the rails? Assuming you can't, you can't get a yes. 
Yeah, so it, it's changed a little bit just because developers today are, are more accustomed to using third-party service providers. Um, and they're starting to kind of outline, you know, what the role of that agent is. Um, you know, is the developer going to handle the hard negotiations uh, and the agent's just going to go knock on a door and, and try to deal with just the contract? Whereas in the earlier years, it definitely was to an extent, the agent was a mini developer. Um, they weren't just being directed by the development company. Uh, they were participating with the development company. So part of that strategy, when you're in the field, the difference, you know, you take a pipeline project and you're going from point A to point B, you know, not necessarily a straight line, but you're going from one point to another and the focus is on the, the track count. How many of these tracks have we gotten uh, along the way? Whereas with the renewable projects, uh, I've always explained it. Basically, you take your your resource, whether it's wind or, or solar, and, and you're drawing a circle on a map that shows here's, here's the ideal resource. Here's where we want to go. Uh, so now let's look at the the pros and cons you know so then you have people uh, running the transmission analysis uh, you have people running environmental uh, surveys to make sure that there's no complications but then you have the land side the access side and so from that let's just assume it's a circle your first approach is going to be you know okay we've got to get this project done do we know, let's say it's a wind project, do we know how big is this an 80 megawatt wind project? Is this a 200 megawatt wind project? Uh, how many turbines do we anticipate? Uh, are we using, you know, which this is just hypothetical, but, you know, years ago, are we using 1.5 uh, megawatt uh, wind turbines? Or are we using 2.5s or 3, you know, 3.0s? What size are we using? That's going to determine, you know, how many turbines are going out there. Uh, so then you can, you know, is there an, uh, an early stage uh, non-committed layout? That goes into your strategy to decide, you know, what landowners should you be talking to. Uh, in other cases, you don't have that layout. So you just want to go out there and you want to get as much acreage as you can. So as opposed to that A to B approach where, okay, let's start from A and just go parcel to parcel to parcel to parcel on that circle. You're trying to identify who's the largest stakeholder out here. Uh, Mr. Smith has 6,000 acres. We want to talk to him, you know, and then uh, Susie has 3,000 acres. We want to talk to her too versus uh, Jimmy who may just have an 80 acre parcel we can put him on the back burner right now while we focus on the large footprint. Whereas in other cases, maybe you're following the transmission line and you've got to have uh, that interconnection point queued up. So instead of going after, you know, Johnny, who's got 6,000 acres, you, you start with that substation location and start to lease up your interconnection spot. So there's just different factors that can go in. And some of it depends on the developers, different developers approach it differently uh, as far as having the early stage layouts or 
uh, assumptions on where they'd like to go uh, or what they consider the most valuable, be it that interconnection uh, tie-in point or the larger stakeholders, et cetera. But once you get out there and you start talking, all of that is in the back of your head. The goal is to complete this, you know, let's call it 100 megawatt project. So once you go talk to to Johnny and he's got 6,000 acres, he says, no, that's 6,000 acres that just got docked out of your project. You've got to figure out, you know, okay, whether we have a, a preliminary layout or not, there's a lot of turbines that can go on 6,000 acres. We have to find another 6,000 acres. You know, how do we do that? Do we need to shift to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south? Is there enough inside this initial boundary to make up for that loss? So that strategy is going on in your head. He said no. If, he's, if he remains a no, how do we complete this project as planned? But at the same time, you're also approaching it from the perspective of why did he say no? You know, I, I met with him uh, on Monday. That was the first meeting. He said no. Uh, how many more meetings do I need to have with him before I completely settle that he's a no? Um, and from there, you just start to uh, brainstorm. You start digging around, find out, did he have a death in the family? Did he have a recent something exciting in the family, a birth or a wedding or, you know, something like that, a graduation? Was there something that was distracting him from really listening to what you were uh, you, you were pitching to him? Um, is there just a general misunderstanding? Uh, maybe he saw on the news, you know, uh, you know, oil and gas company said something negative about wind. And so he just automatically doesn't want to do it. You just have to start picking through what are the reasons he, he could have said no or did say no. And let's start to try to pick through that. Um, and so then you start strategizing, you know, let's take him to lunch. Let's take him to dinner. Uh, let's try to meet with his wife next time. Let's maybe have his kids in the room at the same time. It, it's just it's a it's a strategy that you have to start to develop. Not only a strategy to get that no to a yes, but a strategy of if this remains a no, how do we continue to complete this project? Mm-hmm. For for um, perspective on this, if you're six thousand acres, uh, assuming it's a, a wind project, how how many megawatts of energy would you you know a range? Uh, of megawatts would you be producing off that type of a footprint? In my opinion, that's going to vary, you know, based on the size of the turbine that you're putting on there as well. If you're talking solar, you know, that's, that's going to change also. Uh, But that's part of the, you know, the actual discussion and the negotiation strategies in dealing with landowners, because ultimately at the end of the day, you don't know if it's, it's kind of like, you know, talking about how much, uh, how fuel efficient a car is, the manufacturer is going to tell you, you know, it's, it'll, you know, get you 44 miles per gallon. Uh, but what they're not telling you is that that's, you know, in perfect conditions, downhill, wind at your back, you know, mm-hmm. no obstructions kind of thing. It's kind of that way with, uh, with a renewable project. If you're just 
looking for what can be done on 6,000 acres, you know, then it's the number is X. But the reality is we have to do studies on that 6,000 acres to determine is there, you know, an endangered species out there? Is there, you know, some kind of a Native American uh, historical site out there? Um, is there geotechnical issues? Is the wind resource good? So that 6,000 acres that may be, you know, a massive chunk of land where you could just pile on solar panels or, uh, you know, several wind, wind turbines could at the end of the day be dead in the water or only host, you know, a handful of turbines because, you know, they found the golden cheek warbler uh, nesting grounds out there, or they found an Indian arrowhead. And we had a project, West Texas, it it was West Texas. It's as dry as it gets. And you could look out uh, on this ranch and there was just an open field uh, that led up the mesa where the wind turbines were actually going to be placed. And so we had an access road uh, that was going to be built through this open property. Uh, there was already a two-track road from the landowner. We were just going to improve it, had our uh, environmental assessment done, came back that it it was, uh, uh, I forget what they called it, but basically, historically, it was at one point a very large water resource. And uh, in the future, it had potential to provide water resource for numerous species of, of water creatures. And so it got roped off and, uh, we had to go in, you know, a fairly substantial reroute, um, around this dry land and the landowners came out and, and, you know, said, showed us pictures, you know, going all the way back to the 20, 1920s and beyond, where there was never any water out there, but it didn't matter. You know, the environmental assessment came back and that's mm-hmm. what the study showed. So, you know, from that perspective, um, you know, you have your basic numbers, uh, solar, solar panels. I think the last number that I was given was uh, one megawatt per 10 acres on a wind project. Again, it kind of depends on the size. You know, obviously a 1.5 megawatt turbine, the the blade radius is much smaller than a 3.0 or some of the larger, you know, four megawatts that they're starting to to put out. So the spacing is going to be different. I mean, on 6,000 acres, I'd say you're pretty safe bet that you can put it, you know, at least 10 uh, uh, without feeling like I'm putting my foot in my mouth. But yeah. um, I know I, I it's a it's one of those questions I think that it depends on a lot of things but you've pointed out a lot of things in you know in that discussion just there that these variables that also come into play so the landowner piece is one one piece of it but then you've got all of these you've got the environmental layer you've got the geotechnical layer there can be a lot of other variables that prevent a project from proceeding or require you to be back out there finding an alternative in order for that project to proceed. I'm curious to know from your perspective and from what you've seen, 
what do you think, and this is more for the agents, if there's people listening to this that are considering moving into renewable acquisition, what type of an understanding, training, uh, experience, or even mindset do you think they they should have in order to be most successful? There's there's always been two two things that I've always tried to press, you know, on my staff in the past. Uh, one, you really need a sense of ownership in the project. Um, without without that, it is just a job, and it's just you knocking on a door trying to get a signature. Um, the, the problem with that on a renewable project, especially when you have someone who's got so many questions and it's, you know, even today it's still, you know, a hot topic politically, uh, very high misconception that, you know, renewable energy is trying to, to squeeze out oil and gas and this and that. So there's a lot of attitudes towards, you know, what renewable projects are doing. And if you just go into it as, you know, well, this is just my job. I'm just here for a signature. You know, are you interested or are you not interested? Uh, landowners pick up on that, that attitude and, and that sense of apathy, if you will. Uh, and, and vice versa, if you go in and you're just super excited, it can come across negative also. Um, people start to think you're just, you know, the weaselly little salesman kind of thing. But if you have a sense of ownership and pride in the project, that this isn't just something I'm trying to uh, to get accomplished so I can get my paycheck this week, but this is actually a project that I'm invested in, uh, I, I value it, I think it is beneficial to you and to the community, it, that gets conveyed. So your excitement for it doesn't come across as weaselly, but it comes across as genuine excitement that, Hey, this is a project that I think is going to be very beneficial and successful for you and for this community. Um, and vice versa, anything that you bring to the table where there's a sense of disappointment or frustration, uh, isn't viewed entirely negative because again, it's, you know, similar to, you know, owning your car or something, you know, if you get frustrated, it's not because you think you you know, got a, a crappy car, but it's because you don't like your car to be damaged or, or whatever the case is, they can sense that. So if you're, you know, frustrated or uh, upset with, you know, the, you know, the turnout for the community relations meeting or uh, how the county commissioner's meeting went, or even just how your conversations with that landowner are going, uh, they don't come across as entirely negative they come across as, you know, Hey, I want to participate with you and, and I'm not understanding, you know, where the disconnect is here. Um, so having a sense of ownership and, and pride in the project, in my opinion, changes your personality from just being a job to opening up your, your mental abilities to strategize because now no is not a no. No is just a, a hiccup, and we got to figure out how to overcome it. Um, your brain automatically starts to strategize. Um, and then the second thing that I always told uh, all of my staff was be prepared to be challenged and critiqued. 
this isn't just knocking on doors, yes or no, move on. We're going to strategize. We're going to try to accomplish this project in the fashion that the developer is looking for. And two developers aren't always the same. Even within the same company, developers may have different approaches. And so you may have been successful on project A in state F, but now you're on project B in state M and it's a different approach. It's a different developer, different customer, whatever the case is, maybe it's wind versus solar. And so your approach is going to have to be changed. And we may come to you and say, Hey, you didn't do that in the right way, you know, or that wasn't the best approach, or I think you need to go back and reread you know, your statistics or your numbers on, on solar development or wind development, whatever the case may be. And being open to that, uh, to that challenge and that critique is always helpful. Um, because if you're not in this industry, uh, with renewables, it's, it's so fast paced. And like you said, there's, there's so many variables that can be so complicated. Uh, it's not an, an easy, you know, two plus two equals four and move on. Uh, so you're constantly getting challenged by somebody to do something different or you're getting asked. Uh, I, I know we had agents several times that called me and told me I, they felt like I was challenging their intellect or challenging their, you know, intelligence, um, or their work ethic. Uh, when we were actually doing none of those things, we were just running the traps and we were asking all the questions, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? Did you do that? And just as soon as I asked them on Monday, we have a call with the developer on Tuesday and the developer asks all those same questions because everybody wants to know, are we trying everything possible? So it can come across, you know, like you're being, you know, negatively critiqued, but you're not. Um, so you have to be open to, to having that kind of feedback and, and challenge. There are high expectations, it sounds like, on, on the people that are doing the work, which is, is okay. And, you know, I what I've heard you mention throughout our conversation thus far is, you know, understanding the developer, understanding how the project may be impacted by by hurdles that are unforeseen about understanding the equipment that might be used and how to talk about those things. When people have those questions, it it sounds like if an agent wants to be really effective, there's a, there's a lot of upfront homework that uh, can be done in order to, to do that. You know, studying and researching on your own is helpful some of it also, it, it's just knowing your audience, you know, and that's part of, you know, a, a land agent's job is to know who they're dealing with. You know, the way you handle, you know, Mr. Smith, who's, you know, very rough and rugged, you know, handling cattle all day may not be the same way that you handle Miss Susie, who's, you know, an, an elderly woman whose husband passed away and left all the property to her. So you have to know your audience and know how to talk to them. And, and there's some instances where uh, we've seen success just getting in and, and talking, you know, numbers and cents. Hey, here, here's what we're doing and let's get this done. But uh, 
for the most part, people are naturally curious. And if they've never seen a wind project or experienced a wind project, when, when you are familiar with, you know, a three page oil and gas document or a two page transmission easement, and then, you know, we show up with a 34 page or more wind contract, uh, it, it's new for a lot of people and they don't know how to take it. Um, so there's just a lot of questions uh, that people can typically have. And so knowing that up front and you don't have to be an expert in it, but just knowing it at the bare minimum where to find the information is always helpful. Uh, so that after your meetings, you can go back and, uh, dig up the answers and then have your wraparound call with the, the landowner. Great. We're so. going to land the plane here pretty soon, but I have two questions that I, that I want to get in here before we do. One is more for a project developer. What advice would you give today for someone that's interested in developing a project? So, uh, you know, I'd say as far as a developer and, and their use of a, an access company, you know, on their projects, my biggest advice for them that I've seen, you know, be a struggle for some folks is being specific in your expectations. Um, you know, if you've got a project and you decide to hire land service company, it, you've got to realize that, you know, access is involved in numerous industries, the rail industry, telecommunications, oil, gas, transmission, uh, transportation and, and general real estate all deal with access and they don't all deal with access the same. So if you just show up, you know, because, you know, land service company A says, yeah, we can, you know, we do leasing and we do title or, or whatever. If you don't give them, you know, specific expectations on here's, here's how I do things. Here's what I want done here's how I want it done, uh, then they default understandably and naturally uh, to what they're accustomed to. And that may be something that's not helpful um, or uh, successful in your project. And if you're not specific about that up front, then on the back end, it causes problems because then everybody is scrambling to figure out who, who caused a problem on this project. You know, was it the service company that didn't do their job? Was it the developer who didn't tell them what their job was? Um, so I'd say, you know, if you're planning to develop a project and use an access company, uh, especially if it's a company you haven't used before um, or a company, let's just say that you've got a, a, a friend or a buddy that recommended a company, but that, that service company doesn't have a tremendous amount of renewable experience, uh, doesn't make them bad at renewables. Um, it just reiterates that, you know, going into it, you need to be very specific with how you uh, expect to interact with that company and what kind of deliverables you expect to see from them. Last question. What do you think the future looks like in the renewable space with all the green push for green energy and you know, specific to the access piece, what do you foresee or challenges, you know, getting over the hurdles of actually 
acquiring what's needed to develop these projects? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a challenging question, uh, with, a, you know, in my opinion, a lot of possible, uh, answers, you know, with the rate at which technology is, is improving, uh, it almost seems silly not to at least assume at some point, even access has potential to become automated. <laughs> um, you know, somebody is going to get the bright idea to, to figure out how to, to create databases uh, where you're not having to knock on near as many doors because you can automate a system. But, you know, that's, uh, you know, down the road on, on the probably the same level of flying cars. You know, it's not impossible, but that's where our technology seems to be heading, you know, very, very uh, automated in some senses. But I, I think at least where we're at today, things are, you can see a social change and a social push for green energy, um, which is going to drive more renewable projects. Uh, but at the same time, you, you have a counter push against it. And so I think the future of access uh, is going to be a bit of a cop-out response, but I just think it's going to be complicated uh, because you're going to have folks who have a very negative view of, against it, especially if they haven't experienced it or if they're just, you know, hardcore, you know, one party versus the other kind of thing. And and we've experienced that and it, and it can be very challenging to get someone on board when they're already set in, in their mind that I'm not interested. This is stupid. This is wrong. This isn't the way the country should be going, you know, whatever that, that uh, argument may be. But, you know, at the same time, kind of along the sense, you know, of, of saying that it's silly not to assume that technology is going to get involved. It's silly not to assume that uh, capitalism isn't going to drive us the way it always does. And we've already seen that with renewable projects that even people who don't like it and aren't interested, they like money and they're willing to talk dollars. And that unfortunately uh, I think is where we're probably going to see the biggest shift as more and more push gets put on green energy and green technologies as more companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Walmart, Ford, you know, all the, the auto manufacturers are all pushing to have uh, their own line of electric vehicles soon. You know, that's kind of, to an extent, that's like, you know, oil and gas's baby now saying we're going to help push this green, this green movement. So you're going to have people start to get on board, but they're going to, it's going to become a money thing. You know, well, if all these big companies are doing it, then there's got to be money there. And, I, you know, I'm not making as much in oil and gas anymore. So how can I make money on, on this? Uh, you know, so I think, it'll be a very complicated and expensive future <laughs> mm -hmm. for us. But, you know, that's just kind of looking at things how we are right now. It, you know, who knows? It could, everybody could jump on the, the green energy bandwagon and start just, you know, giving us easements left and right for, for nothing. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it's a, it is a complicated question, you know, because there's a lot of 
a lot of different directions you could go with the answer. I think that the the access piece is only going to get more challenging as more land is needed and less land is available. And that just seems to be the nature of things. So, um, but Travis, I, I appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing your experience and your ideas with, uh, with our listeners. And is there, um, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Is there a, a place people can, can reach you if they want to reach out to you directly? Uh, yeah. Um, it, most people can find me on, on LinkedIn. That's really the only uh, social media I have at the moment. Um, but I also, oddly enough, as, as we talk about access, uh, I have kind of taken a, a detour away from the direct access industry after 15 years. And I'm currently working with Antrust Title Insurance here in Houston on their energy division. Uh, so as opposed to working on the front end of those development projects, I'm now kind of on the back end, uh, you know, helping as they're going into finance and construction. So you can, you can contact me there, Travis.Warren at AmTrustGroup.com. Or like I said, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, if anybody's connected to Chad, just look through his friends network. You'll find me. Uh, but yeah, that's, that, those are the best Great. ways to get in touch with me. Great. Well, we'll add that into our show notes page so that people can can reach you if they want to. And Travis, uh, thanks again for joining us today. And I look forward to further conversations. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Chad. Thank you.